Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know that Enterprising Individuals now has a Facebook group for listeners of the show. It's called Enterprising Interlocutions, and you can find it by going to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or by searching for Enterprising Interlocutions on Facebook. It's a place for fans of the show to meet and share content and to discuss engrossing themes of science fiction like the ones we talk about on the show. So stop by on Facebook and check us out. If you've been paying attention to the news, you know that there's both good news and bad right now in the world of Trek, from new announcements about the upcoming Picard series on All Access to the departure of CBS president Les Moonves from the network. That one's probably more good than bad, but still a shakeup for the Trek sphere. And that's the sort of thing that we're always discussing on Facebook and Twitter at EIST Pod and on Enterprising Interlocutions. So join the groups and join the conversation. I want to wish a happy belated 52nd birthday to Trek. It doesn't look a day over 30 with that HD remaster. Of course, Trek premiered on primetime TV in 1966 with The Man Trap, but before that was the unaired pilot for the show, The Cage. And we have a full commentary track for The Cage available on our Patreon. It's a feature called Stellar Commentaries, where I and a guest watch an episode of Star Trek and provide facts and humorous commentary about the show. And our next episode, available soon, is The Man Trap. So you can watch the episode that started it all and hear us shoot holes in it in a loving way. You can find those commentaries, plus my DS9 rewatch diaries, our live episodes, and more at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Humor is, of course, an important aspect of Trek, and that's what I discussed with Dr. Steve Molman, who's on the show today. We talk making Trek funny and why it's important to pop the bubble of ostentatiousness every once in a while. It's a funny and insightful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know... What you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I wanna know What you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and here's some advice. If you can't spot the Shralk in your first half hour at a Fizzbin table, then you are the Shralk. <laughs> I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Steve Molman. Steve has a PhD in English literature with a specialization in Victorian literature and science, and he's an assistant professor in English and writing for the University of Tampa. He's penned several works of Star Trek fiction, along with his writing partner Michael Schuster, including the 2001 TOS novel A Choice of Catastrophes. He also reviews comics and sci-fi and fantasy novels on his website, Science's Less Accurate Grandmother, and reviews Hooniverse novels for UnrealitySF.net. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about a piece of the action, the 17th episode of the second season of Star Trek, the original series, a.k.a. The Gangster One where Kirk and crew find themselves in a ridiculous situation on a planet that looks like the set of an Edward G. Robinson movie. Humor was never a priority in storytelling for Star Trek's creator, Gene Roddenberry, so in the early years of the show, it was left for other writers and contributors, most notably the other Gene, Gene Kuhn, to inject levity into the future and from time to time pop the bubble of ostentatiousness that Trek could be prone to. And we'll get to that a little later in the show. But first, Steve, 
let's look into your dossier, your backstory. How did you come to Star Trek? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think there's, I cannot remember a point in my life where I did not know about Star Trek. Sure. Uh, my mom was a Star Trek fan growing up, and her mom was also a fan. Uh, I think for them, it was primarily about Next Gen. Yeah. Uh, so I think, there, I mean, there must have been a point. I remember a point where I didn't know very much about it. Uh, I, I have this memory of watching Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I was convinced that it took place before the original series, which in retrospect doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. Uh, I must have been about 10 at the time. Uh, and I, I remember like the first time I saw Star Trek four and they were flying around in a Klingon ship. Right. Uh, and I didn't know what a Klingon was. And I was convinced that a bird of prey because of the sort of arc of its wings was a little ship that clung on to the secondary hull of the enterprise. Okay. That they, so I rem those are my earliest memories of Star Trek is like knowing enough to not know what was going on. It's uh, funny those blanks that you you fill in. At least I know I did as a kid, seeing something that you don't fully understand. And of course, there's no memory alpha or Wikipedia to look things up. So you start to make these theories, like, oh yeah, okay, maybe that, yeah, that fits on the other ship, or like, you know, they they're in this different ship for some reason. I guess I haven't seen the other movies, so I have to sort of make up or fill in the backstory on my own. Yeah, exactly. At some point, someone bought me the. Star Trek chronology um, that must have been like I think there was an edition in 96 uh -huh. mine went up through the first season of Voyager I remember that uh, and I it fell apart right like I poured over that thing sure. so much sure uh, I still have it somewhere I ended up three hole punching the whole thing and sticking it into a three ring binder because the um, the spine of it had completely collapsed with my how much I poured over that thing as a kid. Sure. That sounds a lot like my experience, too, mostly because the books were probably my closest connection because I wasn't allowed to see the Star Trek movies. And I was reading uh. some of your blog um, at Less Accurate Grandmother, and you were talking about having viewing restrictions in your family growing up. Uh, there were certain mm. things, movies and TV shows that you couldn't see. Um, what, what was the source of that? I wish I knew. Um, I think when I, I posted the that piece I just wrote, I also posted the link on my Facebook and my, my little brother commented on it. Uh, we were always not allowed to watch things that were inappropriate. Sure. And my brother commented, I would always ask dad, inappropriate for what? I don't think he liked the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're kind of what I think a sort of my dad uh, came from sort of a middle class conservative Catholic background. Uh -huh. uh, and I think there was just kind of a vague sense of cultural conservatism. Oh, sure. Uh, that sort of influenced his worldview. I know when I started dating my now wife, and I was like 23, and when she would come over, she had to sleep in a separate room. Right. Uh, if we were staying at my parents. Um, by the time my little brother got a girlfriend, well, he was smarter than me. Uh, I asked, he didn't. Uh, she just slept with him. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if this should be on the air. Uh, <laughs> but Star Trek, though, I think was always fair game. I don't think Star Trek was ever censored in any way, shape or form in the Mulman household. Um, and I, I think that kind of goes for most general science fiction, like uh, like Alien and sort of more horror and horror oriented science fiction was out uh, but I think basically any kind of normal sci-fi was considered fine. Interesting. 
and it's dealing it's really when you think about it star trek specifically is really challenging um a lot of the um sort of things that we assume about society and a lot of the um sort of institutions that exist it can be very subversive in a way um in a way that an alien just ripping somebody's head off isn't that's completely visceral so <laughs> it's it almost doesn't really achieve its its goal like a ban on that sort of thing i know that we had that a lot in my house we had a whole list of things that you couldn't watch and the simpsons was on it and mm. which who who hasn't seen everybody's seen the simpsons and i asked my parents in a rare moment of um defiance uh, trying to challenge them i was like why why not why can't we watch this and i think it was because like oh the the dad is dumb or something <laughs> and it, you know it, it it attacks like the family unit and even you know in my teens i i could respond with where i realized that it isn't it's like it's parody it's not saying that children should not respect their fathers it's like parodying a, a dumb sort of you know guy like a sort of middle american type dummy guy that's that's all it's doing and so i don't know i think that exposure um can fix anything because at one point um i think just in open defiance i was just watching the simpsons one time um and my mom sat down and started watching it and it was the one i don't know if you know this one or remember it but it's the one where homer and marge uh rekindle their love for each other because they realize that it's fun to have uh sex in like public places <laughs> so they're, <laughs> they're like doing it like at the mini golf place you know inside the windmill and stuff like that and it's a very funny episode and my mom was just she was laughing her ass off like she was really entertained by it and after that it disappeared from the list so mm. go figure <laughs> yeah i mean i actually no i haven't seen that one because i think i could count the number of simpsons episodes i've seen on one hand still oh, like okay. i as a result of that sort of i never it, i never watched it as a kid and it was so like verboten i never had a desire to watch it okay. and then like yeah so i still actually have not hardly seen any of the Simpsons. Uh -huh. um, but I did grow up, I think, even though I wasn't restricted, I don't think I was super restricted on my TV, but I did really grow up as novels being my big access to yeah. Star Trek yeah. because like it was hard to watch it in the nineties. Right. Like oh, yeah. there was, there was a TV station. I grew up in Cincinnati and there was like a TV station in Louisville, Kentucky, I think that aired the original series at 2 PM on Sundays. <laughs> like, and that's kind of far away, so the weather had to be good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but our library was great, and it had ev our public library had like every original series novel. Yeah. So I I had read a higher percentage of the novels than I had seen of TV episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and that I don't think I saw every episode of Star Trek until it hit uh, the original until it hit DVD, and I was able just to sort of watch through it. Oh, that's good. Systematically. Yeah. Uh, but I, I knew I used to drive my mom nuts because when we would watch one together, I could identify them all based on like having read about them in the chronology and in the encyclopedia, <laughs> even if I hadn't seen it. And I could do it in like 15 seconds. Uh, I'd be like, oh, Sisters 3, this is this is Arena. They're going to fight the Gorn. I've never seen this one. Like it was like a point of pride for me that I could do this. And I was always right. It's a little obnoxious, I guess. <laughs> that sounds so familiar to me. I, it's like uh, when Indiana Jones and the um, what was the last one? The Last Crusade came out. Like mm. I, um, I read the novelization. I did that for a lot of uh, films because I wasn't allowed to see the films. So I would read the book because uh, I just had to have something that I could tell, like my peers. You know, like everybody's at the at school talking about the film. 
And of course, in any novelization, there are differences. So I would remember what happens in it differently because Alan Dean Foster or whoever, you know, did the novelization decided to take a little plot line for a walk and there's something that's not really in the movie. So that's how they found out. But the joke's on my parents because now I write about media and I've got a couple of podcasts about TV and movies. So there you go. <laughs> uh, speaking of media, um, your your scholarship is focused on uh, Victorian uh, literature and studies. What attracted you to that field? So I I am I was an English major in college, and then I got an MA in English, and then I got a PhD in English, and now I'm a professor of English. Uh, but my father is an engineer. My mother is an engineer. Uh, my grandfather was an engineer. Several of my uncles are engineers. My um, brother is an engineer. My sister is an engineer. Uh, most of my cousins are in engineering or the sciences. Uh, and so, like, and there's me, right, uh, who really liked reading books, um, which goes true for the rest of my family. But I think that what I became as I um, sort of got deeper into literature, something that kind of became interesting to me was how your discipline shapes your worldview, right? Uh, right. And I think, I think it has for me, even though I am not an engineer and I don't think I would make a good one, uh, but I do think there are sort of aspects of, my father, I used to say, can just look at problems and see solutions. Uh, like he doesn't need to think about it. He just sees something and he's like, oh yeah, that's how we're going to fix it. Um, sometimes he sees problems uh, but that you don't even know exist. Uh, yeah. And I think like, he just has like a sort of way of thinking and that's kind of what got me into thinking, being interested in the intersection of sort of science and literature. It's like, how does being trained as a scientist shape your worldview? Huh? Interesting. And then, so uh, the 19th century is really interesting to me uh, because that's when science as we currently understands it comes into existence, right? Like sure. the word scientist is coined in the 1830s and uh, kind of comes in the common use in the 1880s. Um, and that's when science becomes a job you can have as opposed to like, oh, I'm a rich guy who wants to know <laughs> about tides. Let me devote some time to this because I can devote my time to anything because I'm wealthy. Right. Uh, whereas like by the late 19th century, like you can be a poor person, go to school for science and get a job in science, which is not a thing you could have done 100 years prior. Yeah. Uh, and so the 19th century is really where that viewpoint of like the idea that there is a scientific way of seeing the world, I think, emerges over the course of the 19th century. And so that's kind of what drew me there uh, in sort of being interested in it. And then especially, I was writing a paper about a Victor Have you ever read any novels by Thomas Hardy? S of the D'Urbervilles, Jude the Obscure. So Tess is kind of like all his other novels. Uh, a woman sort of marries someone who she shouldn't marry. Uh, she's miserable for the rest of her life as a result. <laughs> right. Uh, and Tardy has another one called The Woodlanders, which is like the same plot, except that the guy that she marries is a scientist. Uh, and he sort of treats her as an experiment. Huh. Like, huh. he's like, can I get this woman to fall in love with me? Oh, yeah, turns out I can. Like, result proven. Uh, I'm going to marry her and then ignore her. Can I get this other woman to sleep with me even though I'm married? Oh, yeah, I can. Like, result proven. That's awesome. Like, more data for my study of human nature, whatever. Sure. Uh, and so I was reading this. I'm like, this is so weird. Like, this guy is a terrible person because he's a scientist, right? Right. Uh, and so I was looking for, like, an academic book that talked about this, and there wasn't one. And so that was basically how I ended up with my research, which is, like, I'm going to write that book. I haven't yet, but hopefully at some point. Do you think that 
real world events like the uh, advent of the industrial age influenced literature more or literature influenced like the real world more do you think like the depiction of science uh, mm. and in in fiction and in, and the scientist in in fiction uh pushed uh the uh, industrial age and revolution forward uh, I, I, my, my sort of cop-out answer might be both. <laughs> um, I think like they're definitely, it sort of fascinates me that like, I mean, this depends on your sort of background, right? But you could go through your life and never meet a scientist, right? Like sure. I know a lot of scientists because I went to grad school. Uh, so I knew a lot of scientists in the science, in the science program or graduate students in science programs. Uh, but if you like watch any movie or read any books, right, like scientists are everywhere. And that sort of shapes your view of like how scientists are, yeah. even if you haven't met one. Right. Uh, but conversely, like some huge things happened in the 19th century in terms like you mentioned, the Industrial Revolution. I think the big things for me that I, I see a lot of stuff sort of trace from is this discovery of scale that uh, time is way bigger than we thought. Um, that like if you were born in like the early 19th century over the course of your life, you could have gone from, oh, humanity is 6,000 years old to humanity is millions of years old and millions of years is just a pinprick in the history of the universe. Right. right. Uh, and so I think you really see a lot of that in literature. That's funny because I feel like the Victorian mind would be really into that. But I wonder, did did, was the Victorian mind just ready for that, or did learning about that scale of the universe influence uh, the Victorian sort of a neo-romantic kind of style? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> we're, uh, we're way off the, the trek path. <laughs> I think some people were ready for it, some people weren't, right? I think um, there's a lot of other stuff going on, right? A lot of old world stuff is kind of being torn down. Uh, democracy is becoming ever more prevalent yeah. Uh, especially in Europe, uh, which sort of bleeds over into into continental Europe, which bleeds over into the UK. Um, but like, so you have, um, but there are some people who couldn't take it, I think, uh, like, oh, what's his name? I never know if I'm saying it right, but Philip Henry Goss was like a Victorian naturalist. Um, and he didn't say that God put fossils in the ground to test our faith. Um, but he said something very close to it yeah. that well caricatured his position as so like he just he just could not take it like it at all. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, he was good friends with another um, sort of amateur naturalist slash uh, minister Charles Kingsley, and Kingsley was one of like Darwin's sort of greatest supporters, and he wrote Darwin these letters being like, yeah, Origin of Species, it's great, like it just shows even more like that God can work on these kind of time scales and through such means just sort of shows even more what a great person or not great person, great entity, I guess sure. God is. So yeah, I think there was kind of a varied set of reactions. Yeah. I mean, some people were kind of already primed for it. Like, you know, like a guy like William Blake, who's already sort of exploring uh, the idea of this uh, expansion of the natural world and sort of getting like the love for mysticism that arose in like the 19th century um, in England. Um, it just seems to really dovetail into what you said about, oh, suddenly the Earth isn't only 6,000 years old or, you know, it, mm. it's not just our solar system. There's millions of galaxies. So people's minds yeah. got blown, man. 
Yeah, I think for some people, it, yeah, it, that makes sense. I, I see, yeah, because like you have Thomas Hardy again, who I kind of always go back to. Uh, like he was a hugely pessimistic person. Uh, <laughs> and then you discover evolutionary theory and that we're just the result of random chance. Like it just feeds back into your pessimism, right? right. Like it just uh, – <laughs> Tess of the D'Urbervilles is just like shot through I think with this sort of idea that we're all just like – the evolution of our ancestors and what bad things they did uh, come down to us because of evolution. Uh, so it just kind of becomes another oh. vessel for his pessimism. The love of Victoriana, like a lot of things that people love these days, is a fandom unto itself. And it usually gets lumped in with or has been absorbed by steampunk culture, it seems like. Are you are you a steampunk fan? No. Um, <laughs> That's why that sounded very that sounded very definite. Uh, I don't. It's just honestly, it's one of those things that I feel like I should know more about, given my sort of interest and background, but I've never got around to. Yeah. Right. Like I've I've read some comic books that are um, steampunk influenced. There's a DC comic from the '90s. Oh, I think it's called Age of Wonder. Uh, that's like a sort of steampunk take on the Justice League. Okay. Uh, but I think outside of like some comic books like i've never read the difference engine or any of right. the other sort of like ur texts of the steampunk movement kind of makes me feel like a poser um <laughs> i guess i'm a little skeptical of steampunk actually if you uh one of the stories i wrote was for um do you know do you know who iris wild time is i don't think so okay she's like she's a character who originated in doctor who novels uh she's a time lady Oh. Uh, and she has like her own spinoff series. Uh, and I wrote, uh, a short story for one, an anthology in that series okay. about steampunk. Um, and that story kind of expresses my skepticism, which is that I think there's a lot of sort of nostalgia built into steampunk, mm. um, for the Victorian era. And though I think that the Victorian era is like better than many of the eras that preceded it, I am not nostalgic for it. Like I'm very happy to live in the 21st century. <laughs> so I think for me, that kind of keeps me from, I think steampunk that sort of critiques the past is interesting, but steampunk that kind of just uses the past as a springboard for sort of like fun adventures and glosses over the kind of problems of the past, I find less interesting. Interesting. I uh, have not finished the Difference Engine either, but the parts that I have read, um, this is uh, Sterling and uh, William Gibson's um, book, mm -hmm. of course, uh, is very critical of the time. Like they focus a lot on the social issues and stuff like that. So it just wasn't as exciting as his cyberpunk stuff. So I didn't make it through. Um, <laughs> I also think that like the steampunk and the Victorian uh, things you see in a lot of genre stuff are just like this affectation that a lot of authors will throw some parasols and some handsome cabs into their books and suddenly they're, they're steampunk, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Do you end up critiquing something you're reading uh, when the author has their crinoline in the wrong place, if it's a, a Victorian or a period <laughs> thing? Or, or can you just kind of go with the flow? Uh, usually I can go with the flow, I think. Uh, there are definitely times that things kind of throw me for the loop. Uh, I think something that kind of I'm very personally sensitized to because of my own research is just the word, use of the word scientist. Um I think I was, I think it was a Doctor Who audio drama I was listening to recently. And it was set in like the 1850s and someone calls himself a scientist. Uh -huh. And I just, that immediately throws me out. because so I was like, the word is coined in the thirties, but no one liked it because they thought it made them sound like people who 
worked essentially uh, <laughs> as opposed to people at a calling men of science is sure. what you would call yourself sure, sure. Uh, and so as soon as i hear that i'm just like oh come on like don't do that <laughs> uh, but i mean i watch uh i watch a lot of bbc period drama stuff and i know it's not all perfect but yeah for the most part i eat it up anyway so i guess the other thing that sort of throws me is like sexual mores uh, if someone starts like making out right away, which happens in a lot of the more modernized BBC dramas, I'm kind of like, you can't do that. Like, yeah, that, that, that's just that's just inappropriate. Yeah. Maybe it's my dance. <laughs> up on me. There's um, I wouldn't recommend this as a great example of uh, the period. But like, I think I've, I've seen a little of the show Penny Dreadful and. Part of it is like intensely violent and sexual because that's kind of what's for sale here. But there's, I do like some parts where I like the Eva Green character kind of likes the, I think the Dorian Gray character. And it, you're, if they were modern people, they would have just gone on a date and just fell into bed. But they spend like the entire season kind of meeting and then she's sort of warming to him and he's sort of like, may I call on you? And it just followed what you'd think of as the sort of typical mores of the period or how you'd kind of court somebody. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen Penny Dreadful. I'd like to. I feel like it's all right. I, it's not it great. Is it good? It's all right. It's it's um like I said. I mean, it, you know, it's a cable TV show on I don't know Showtime or Stars or whatever. So I think they feel that they have to really turn the volume up in terms of mm. blood and guts and stuff. But it does. I, I I you would know better than I. I think they do a pretty good job uh, when they're just th of the setting here. I have to ask before we move on. Science's less accurate grandmother. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I've been criticized for this more than once. Um, but it's a uh, it's a George Eliot quote okay. uh, from, I think, Middlemarch. Oh, geez. Maybe Daniel Deronda. Um, but uh, it's the less accurate grandmother of science is poetry. Uh, oh. And and so I think her if I remember right, the full context of the quote is that sort of everything requires you to pretend that you have a beginning uh, like science there's no real beginning right like every cause is a previous cause sure. uh and the same thing is true of poetry or and she's using poetry in the sense of literature broadly that like every story the sort of starting point of the story is arbitrary uh -huh. um, so but you have to start somewhere so um so she has this sort of analogy about how this is true of both science and science's less accurate grandmother poetry <laughs> okay <laughs> If I had a blog called like stevemolman.blogspot.com, maybe <laughs> yeah, more no. people would read it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, the episode that we're looking at today depicts characters and people being influenced by literature, which is right up your alley. But apart from that, why did you select a piece of the action to talk about? Uh, I think it's my favorite episode of the original series and maybe all Star Trek. Mm. Um, I don't think it's super defensible. <laughs> uh, like I think it's a good episode I don't think I could mount a defense of it being a great episode my tastes have sort of changed to being interested in sort of standalone uh, adventures of characters I like like I think a piece of the action epitomizes that um, approach in the original series which is just like you like Kirk you like Spock you like McCoy what if we sent them to a planet where everyone was a gangster right. wouldn't that be hilarious uh, I'm like, yes, it would be hilarious. Like, uh, I think 
there are probably I really like Bounds of Terror and I really like uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, I think they're probably more seriously put together episodes of the original Star Trek. But I think um, on the 40th or not the 40th, the 50th anniversary, I convinced my wife that we should watch two episodes of the original series. Uh, so we watched Where No Man Has Gone Before and we watched Piece of the Action. Uh, and I was like, yeah, this is Star Trek. This is what I like about it now, I guess. Not so much 10 years ago, but we're talking about a piece of the action. It's the 20th episode of the second season of Star Trek, the original series. It first aired on January 12th of 1968. The teleplay was by David P. Harmon and Gene L. Kuhn, who we'll get back to in a bit. Uh, the story is by Harmon. He was a screenwriter or a scenist with a long, long career in Hollywood. He also wrote uh, the episode The Deadly Years for the original series, and he wrote The Eye of the Beholder for the animated series. And he wrote on uh, Gilligan's Island, Brady Bunch, Untouchables, Wonderful World of Disney, long career in TV. Uh, it was directed by James Comack. This is Comack's only episode of Star Trek. Comack began his career as an actor and a comedian and later became a TV director and producer. He was a producer for The Courtship of Eddie's Father and Welcome Back, Cotter. He also directed episodes of My Favorite Martian, The Green Hornet, and Get Smart, and he directed the feature film Porky's Three Revenge. So <laughs> definitely a comedy background there. Uh, the character of Admiral James Comack in the episode This Side of Paradise was named in his honor. Uh, the star date for this episode is unknown. Um, a star date of 4598.0 appeared in B. Joe Trimble's Star Trek Concordance, which um, it probably came from an early script draft. That's how she got a lot of her information. Uh, but the photo novel of the episode provides a closing star date of 4598.7. So, Steve, your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of a piece of the action. Oh, wow. Um Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock beam down to a gangster planet. Uh, Captain Kirk saves it by taking it over. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's a pretty good yeah. That, that's exactly what happens in the episode. Is <laughs> <laughs> that twenty five words? Uh, it was probably close. I need to come up with some kind of um, machine. I need a scientist or a man of science to invent <laughs> something that can quickly count words like that. Um, here's some interesting facts about the episode from the memory banks. Uh, there's a lot of interesting guest stars on this episode. It's clear they are all chosen to bring something specific to their roles, um, be it comedic or sort of thuggish. Bella Oxmix was played by Anthony Caruso, who was himself a veteran of gangster films in the 40s, like Johnny Apollo and the Blue Dahlia. He's also a frequent guest star in many 60s TV shows. Callow, Oxmix's lieutenant, is played by Lee Delano. Delano began his career as an improvisational comic alongside Sid Caesar, and he would later work with Mel Brooks on Silent Movie, High Anxiety, and History of the World Part 1. Jojo Cracko, which <laughs> you have to admit, a lot of the names in this episode sound like something from Rick and Morty. <laughs> um, he was played by Vic Tabak, who's probably best known for playing Mel in both the TV series Alice and the 74 Scorsese film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, a few more facts. This is the only episode in which Kirk refers, refers to McCoy as Sawbones and not merely the diminutive bones. William Blackburn's recurring character, Lieutenant Hadley, gets his name in this episode. This episode was clearly filmed on the Paramount backlot, which probably saved the show a little money. And that street that it's filmed on can be seen in many other Paramount projects. For example, the steps to Oxmix's hideout were used in the NBC series Dear John, which takes me back. I don't think any of the listeners probably know what Dear John was. Um, but I don't know what it is either. It was a sitcom with Judd Hirsch, and he's uh, his wife writes him a Dear John letter, and he's depressed, and he um, the, the premise is it's, you know, we focus on the support group that he goes to every week, 
and it's wacky and it didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> this is the first episode in which a site to site transport is used. And speaking of comedy, it's the first and only Trek episode to end on a freeze frame like it's an episode of TJ Hooker or Police Squad. Is that true? Oh, I didn't. I, I When I rewatched it, I was like, oh, it ended on a freeze frame. Yep. And I feel like there's sort of a, a, a kind of folk memory that multiple episodes of the original series <laughs> ended on a freeze frame. Many with of, like, many of them. Some kind of joke, freeze frame, ship flies off. But, it, right. but that's not true. I think this that's, that's become the cliche. But no, many of them end on static action. Like um, Kirk will just say for a head full and he'll look forward and it'll kind of pull out but this is the only one where it actually freezes and you expect the larry sanders theme to come in or something like that yeah it's it's a it's a very comedic touch i'm really glad that you want to discuss this episode uh it's one of those shows that at least for a kid watching the series it's easy to latch onto. it's like oh this is the, the this is the gangster one and i learned something that i didn't know researching for this i'd heard the name damon runyon before but i wasn't closely familiar with his work and he wrote a lot of short stories about the Prohibition area. And so this kind of milieu, the whole, yeah, I'm going to rub him out sort of style, is called Runyon-esque. Oh. I don't know if you can get a PhD in Runyon-esque studies, but <laughs> <laughs> I dare you to try. Uh, the premise of this episode came from a note that Gene Roddenberry wrote on the original Star Trek series proposal. And by note, I mean a two-word synopsis that just said, President Capone. The idea was that the ship would visit a planet where Al Capone was president. Uh, George Clayton Johnson, the writer of the episode The Man Trap, wrote an outline based on that premise called The Syndicate. And Roddenberry hired Johnson to develop, to develop it further into a treatment, which he did, that was entitled Chicago 2. So producer and head writer Gene Kuhn, at this point, uh, discovered the original treatment because it was abandoned in the first season, uh, while well, he was working on the second season, and he decided to develop it because of the success of The Trouble with Tribbles, he felt that the show should try more comedic episodes and he could make it funny. So he worked with writer David Harmon to produce this first draft that was titled Mission into Chaos. And in the first draft, it featured the crew of the Enterprise dealing with the Romulans for control over this planet. Uh, and they very quickly turned this script around. Gene was known to be a very speedy writer. Uh, and in a couple days, he rewrote it into a piece of the action. And Gene, Gene was a proponent of using comedy in the series. For instance, he he did heavy rewrites on David Gerald's already funny script, The Fuzzies, uh, to make it into The Trouble with Tribbles. And Kuhn had argued with Roddenberry over the tone of the series for years, and it's one of the reasons that's generally cited for Kuhn's exit from the show after the second season. In fact, Fred Freiberger, the show's third season producer, who was brought on to replace Kuhn, disliked this episode. And he reportedly turned down a sequel to Tribbles from Gerald saying Star Trek is not a comedy. So that is going through that's in the, the blood of the series to begin with. And in my mind, I can already see Roddenberry seeing this uh, this episode, um, like I said before, as a serious and Edward G. Robinson. Is this the end of Little Rico type thing? He's even got maybe a little bit of religious commentary in the episode and the way that they're killing each other uh, over what their book tells them to do. And then he got Gene Cooney comes in. He turns it into a total farce. <laughs> I can even imagine that his bland first draft title, Mission into Chaos, was a, like a generic label to keep Roddenberry from getting wise to the fact that they're stuffing <laughs> it full of <laughs> these silly bits. So what I want to know is wh what's your opinion on comedy and Trek? Roddenberry certainly didn't seem to have much of a sense of humor about the future or his future, but... Do you think it's worth laughing at on occasion? Uh, I think it's great, uh, to be honest. I think, like, it's just impossible for me 
to imagine this premise. I, it hadn't occurred to me until you just sort of went through all that, that there could be a straight version of this episode out there somewhere. Oh, I think it was totally intended to be straight from the beginning. And that sounds bad to me. Oh, it, oh right? totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> Because like, because Star Trek actually has done that, right? That's bread and circuses. Yeah. Um, and bread and circuses. It's been a long time since I've seen bread and circuses, but like Star Trek visits Rome could be hilarious, but I don't think it is. There's a lot. No, there's a lot of um, uh, commentary on the uh, television industry in the 50s and 60s in bread and circuses too. And bread and circuses, I think, is ultimately other than the sort of basic premise where you say, "Oh, they visit the Romans," and you're like, "Ho ho, that's funny." Like other than that, I feel like it's a pretty forgettable episode. I think. Um, I love. I guess my. I read an interview with um, Stephen Moffat recently, uh, the executive, outgoing executive producer of Doctor Who, right. uh, where someone sort of asked him like his tips for writing or something like that. Uh, and he says, add more jokes. Uh, he was like, there, there, there's nothing that could not be improved with more jokes. Uh, <laughs> if it's a funny script, more jokes are good. But if it's a serious script, you need more jokes to sort of leaven it uh, and humanize it. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, yes. Like I used to be in a creative writing workshop and that was almost – that was kind of a thing that became a cliche is that we would read – I read a piece by someone else. I'd be like, this is good, but it could have more jokes. <laughs> like I think like I love comedy in my drama uh, because I think – because life is funny, right? Right. Uh, and I think for me that makes it come to life uh, just watching – I know you have a Discovery podcast, but I haven't listened to it, so I don't know what you say about it. Uh, <laughs> we <but> like it. <laughs> the, the first couple episodes I thought were very sort of like po-faced. Yeah. Um, and it started to pick up for me around like the fourth episode. Uh, and then they did magic to make the sanest man go mad. And I was like, I dig this. Like this is – I like this show um, because suddenly it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they can be funny within the framework, right? Without breaking the framework of the show, which I think is important. Sure. Uh, like the kind of the my favorite bit in Magic to make the sanest man go mad is the the montage of Harry Mudd killing Lorca uh, again and again <laughs> right. and again. Uh, it's funny. It's dark, and it's completely appropriate to the character as he is portrayed in Discovery. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what really works about piece of the action too, is that it feels true to them. Like when I rewatched it this morning, the bit that sticks out to me is the, the kind of way, like, I like how Shatner portrays Kirk himself as being a bit of a ham, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, he's sort of, <laughs> like at the one point he calls Scotty and he's like, Scotty, this is cook. <laughs> <laughs> And he's, I love how at the end of the episode, everything's fine. They figured it all out. They're on their way uh, for, uh, home and he's still kind of doing the thing on the bridge. Oh yeah. And he yeah, won't yeah. stop. It, it, it's no problem. Bodes, right? Yeah. Like, it's like when your friend like goes to England for a few weeks on vacation and comes back and suddenly it's like, <laughs> oh, I've got a bit of an accent. Mm, I love crumpets. And you're like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Yeah, and I think like it feel, but it feels real to me to the character of Kirk, and then especially like um, the way he plays off Spock. Like Nimoy is funny in the episode uh, as well, yes. but I think never compromises his like essential Spockness. Yes, well, he um, even in, you know in comedy you need a straight man. 
So, yeah, like the bits with them driving the car are some of the funniest parts of the episode to me. Because yeah. both Kirk, who kind of sees himself, right, as a guy who can do anything. He's the captain of a starship. Sure. So it makes perfect sense he would think he's a great car driver. Right. And sort of Spock's, what is it, like, you are an excellent starship commander, but as a taxi driver, you leave much to be desired. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Kirk's like, it's that bad? Uh, and then, like, ten minutes later, he tries it again, right? Because there's nothing that Captain Kirk can't do. Yeah. And Nimoy, I mean, I guess I don't – I haven't read the script, so I don't know what's in the script or what's in the – um, or what came in, like, I, performance. I looked all over for – I know that there are um, published, you know, versions of older scripts and things like that. And so I looked all over for evidence that this was – uh, it's kind of my crackpot theory, I guess, for this episode is that like it was a lot more serious, but I couldn't really find it anywhere. I'd have to ask um, uh, Paula Block and Terry Erdman or something like that if they've got any information. Um, mm. But I, I come from a theater background and the, the adage there is that mood spelled backwards is doom. And that it's, you know, it's wrong and it's um, it's just it, it's not it's not a good idea to sort of play something for one sort of aspect. And mm. if you've got a good story or if you've got a good setting or world, um, yeah, it can it can survive being being stretched in that way. And I think that, you know, what you mentioned about Spock was a great point in that you need different people. It, not everybody. You don't watch a comedy and everybody comes on and we're all funny clowns unless it's like a pie fight. If it's a bunch of clowns <laughs> throwing uh, pies mm. at each other's faces, uh, that's one note. Uh, but you've got um, a lot of different roles that you can fill there. And so I think that. Uh, Gene Kuhn and um, the other guy who's uh, slipping my mind right now, uh, Harmon. Uh, Harmon did a good job of slotting these already established characters into these certain roles. Um, <laughs> yeah, the way that Spock bounces off some of these guys is uh, is amazing. I like it when um, the one guy's saying, um, nobody helps nobody but himself. And Spock's like, uh, you're implying a double negative. <laughs> 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 Which only Spock would take the opportunity to correct somebody's grammar when he's got a Tommy gun pointed at him. Yeah, and the way everyone – you say Spock is the straight man, but now they sort of think about it. I think basically everyone other than Kirk is the straight man, right? Oh, like, yeah, sure. Where Scotty talks to um, the one who's not Oxmix, Krakow. Uh, it is and Scotty try and first he's confused by the scan the slang right but then he tries to do the slang and he's like <laughs> right <laughs> uh, do you want to be in some concrete galoshes or so? <laughs> Uh, or that really great scene where every time Kirk gives an order to Scotty in Gangster Slang and then Scotty says what and then Kirk sort of voce has to repeat the order. He's kind of go back language. over it, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I think they kind of – and the, you, McCoy gets a little bit of that too. Not as much as maybe Spock or Scotty. But yeah, I think like uh, sort of everyone is kind of like what is going on here except for Kirk who's just like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into this. Uh, but I think that fits with the, the Kirk as the sort of like radical problem solver that we have seen throughout the show. Yeah. So. His adaptability. Yeah. Although he certainly, um, he, he puts a little mustard on it. He's certainly enjoying himself, uh, <laughs> adapting in this way. I, I was researching for this episode, uh, as, as it being a comedy sort of, f uh, focused episode and I was Googling funny Star Trek and boy, you don't get a lot of results. <laughs> you get a lot of. Uh, I think the first twenty results were about the Orville, uh, and then you get a lot oh. <laughs> of you get a lot of results with Star Trek, and then you know under the result it says missing, funny, and funny is struck through, and it's like thanks Google, <laughs> thanks a lot. Uh, in my opinion, at least from what we've seen on screen, it seems like humor has always been a mostly unexplored frontier for Trek. Um, it's like it's like with a piece of the action; it's something that it tries to put on every now and then, 
but it never seems to fit very well or only sporadically. And I'm not sure why that is. It's as if the original creator's idea about what it was meant to represent had no room to laugh at itself. Um, I wonder what you think about that. Like, do you think that, and I guess we're only speculating on Roddenberry's intentions, but do you think that he felt like the show had to take itself completely seriously? I mean, because it's, I think, I think humor in science fiction can be tricky, right? Because you want to create a sort of believable world in which humor can happen, but you don't want to send up the world too much yeah. or the world lacks credibility. Yeah. And also, uh, I think that humor, humor comes from, you know, a subversion of what we sort of expect of a norm. And if we are in a strange world, there are no norms for us to sort of tweak and subvert. So it's hard. Yeah, to, to it's like you could, piece of the action could not be the first Star Trek episode no. that ever did. No, like it, it would it would be sort of meaningless in that context, I think, because, yeah, part of the fun of it. And I think this goes for like Star Trek four. Right. Which is probably Star Trek's other best foray into humor yeah. is sort of seeing these people from a world you understand. Right. You've seen and by the time you see piece of the action and definitely by the time you've seen Voyage Home, you've seen enough of their world to understand their world. Yeah. Uh, and so when they're pushed into another world that doesn't fit their expectations, it's funny. Uh, whereas, yeah, you couldn't start with that. But I think I mean, I do think I think humor and Star Trek are very compatible, I would say. Um I sort of waffle on what my favorite Star Trek is series, um, but I go back and forth between the original and um, Deep Space Nine. And I think part of what attracts me towards the original is its sense of humor, um, which could be in full-blown comedy episodes, right? Like um, this one or Trouble of Tribbles or whatever, but just in sort of the small moments, right? In the ways that the characters interact and they don't take each other too seriously. the worst season of Star Trek, uh, but the original is the last one, right? Which I think is maybe the one that now that I think about it has the fewer, the fewest jokes. Yeah. Uh, uh, but is also like hardest to take seriously because it has some of the most ridiculous um, premises on the show. Yeah. So maybe if there were more jokes in um, in the Children Shall Lead, it would be a good episode. Yeah. So. That's not true. Or yeah, or the empath. Yeah. Um, that's that's it's interesting that you'd mentioned that, even though. I I always like to stand up for the third season when I can, because there are some really neat ideas, but they are almost sort of sci-fi stories unto themselves. And I don't think they really take the established history of the show, you know, and the continuity into account. Um, but it reminds me of, um, I, I read on your blog, and I don't know if this is contemporary or not, but that you and your wife were watching Farscape for the first time. Mm. And Farscape is a show where, the the craziest things can happen um, from week to week because it's not they're not worried about being hard sci-fi so a ship can be swallowed by a giant space whale or something like that, and so and it's also a very um, it's one of the first kind of meta science fiction things that I can think of in that it knows that it takes place the the, the main character is from Earth and has grown up watching Star Trek and so he's yeah. always like. Oh, can't we just fire the phasers or something? And all the solutions that it would take 40 minutes for Star Trek heroes to figure out, they try in the first 10 minutes and it doesn't work. And now the story needs to like curl in on itself again and find some ridiculous solution. And yet throughout all of that, uh, they, they find all this humor and they, and they, they um, find a way to sort of poke fun at things and, and, um, and make fun of things. And a lot of that is because they have a point of view character like John Crichton. 
who can look at things and kind of call out how silly they are or how they seem like other sci-fi tropes. And it's tough when you've got this straight-laced, straight uh, straight-faced uh, future of the 23rd or 24th century. You know, we don't have that kind of point-of-view character usually. And we get it when we have something like, like you mentioned, Star Trek Four, where suddenly we've got this uh, irony of like our characters, our heroes are the ones who are out of time and so they don't know how to pay for pizza or, or whatever it is. Um, but I just think that like the original concept of the show, you know, the Cold War isn't really funny. Um, <laughs> Gene Roddenberry is a guy who, uh, you know, he, you know, he's a guy who was probably reading Amazing Stories magazine in uh, in World War II. Um, and so you know, this series has roots in um, sci-fi serials or I don't know, white savior narrative fiction or even even the wagon train to the stars concept. I mean, outside of Blazing Saddles, cowboys aren't all that funny. And so I, I can see how he would think, no, no, look, this is this is the way it is. We don't have zippers and nobody fights in the future. <laughs> and it took other uh, TV executives to go. We're going to have to have some jokes in there. I think it really shows that the fact that the movies are very funny usually, or at least they're trying, because you get like outside screenwriters that aren't from sort of the Paramount stable go, well, you got to have jokes. Are you kidding me? Like, let's do something funny here. Yeah, but you're right. There are definitely times, though, where it doesn't because um, have you read Michael Pillar's book about the making of uh, Insurrection? No, I have not. Because they talk about that in um, that after First Contact, right, which was very dark. They're like, well, why don't we do one that is funnier? Yeah. Um, and I don't think it works, right? Like, I don't think um, I don't think they pull it off in Insurrection. It's not a very good movie. Um, it, it doesn't work. I think I know where you're going. It doesn't work. But I will have to say that I do enjoy the um, humanizing of some of these characters a little more. Like, the bits between Troy and Riker where they're kind of – they're feeling the metaphasic radiation and they're oh, yeah, they and he, yeah they, he shaves his beard and they take a bath or whatever it's not like hilarious but i like seeing these humanizing bits like i like it when it isn't just yes admiral yes captain let's go scan the planet or something when they're like oh i don't like kissing you with a beard and you see these more human elements that get dropped when we have to fight the green monsters every week yeah, no, I agree with you. Actually, I would say I, what I what I like about the jokes in Insurrection is that most of the time I think they sort of arise naturally from the characters. But where I think Insurrection sort of messes up is they don't arise naturally from the story, okay. right? Like it's it's supposed to be like it's like their original inspiration was Heart of Darkness, right? Like <laughs> Captain Picard goes up the river to find the man who's gone rogue, right? Like, yes. And I don't know how you say, we're going to do a Heart of Darkness movie and it's going to be the funniest Next Generation movie. Like, you can't do both of those things. Yeah. I guess this contradicts my previous theory. No, that <laughs> no but what, once again, uh, though... It, Heart of Darkness doesn't need more jokes, but... <laughs> but once again, it's, it's an example of them snatching comedy from the jaws of tragedy. Taking something like Heart of Darkness which itself has been adapted uh, extremely darkly, you know, into Apocalypse Now and going, it'd be funny. Put some more jokes in there. <laughs> what if it was Heart of Darkness, but Data made a joke about boobs? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. What if uh, Colonel Kurtz, you know, had a big red nose? What about that? <laughs> Comedy's never funny when it's sort of sweaty, you know, and they're trying too hard. And I think that that's a big problem that Voyager has. Uh, Voyager's like that guy at the office that, oh, he's such a cut up. He's always forwarding you Dilbert cartoons. 
You know, <laughs> like Tom Paris is supposed to be a funny character, and he's so annoying. You you want them to leave him in the Delta Quadrant. Did start. I was just trying to think about outside of the original, what show did the most comedy episodes? It's probably DS Nine, the Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, oh, or yeah, yeah. In the Cards, um, which uh, I think do the do the thing that I think piece of the action does well. That the the humor sort of comes from the characters in a sort of natural way. Yeah. Uh, but I guess Voyager had a couple. Um, now I can't. Bride of Chaotica uh, is actually probably one of my like top five Voyager episodes. They would be my vote for the most because really? I think that they are always trying to, like like I said, you know, you've got was wacky Tom Paris, and then you've got a guy like Robert Picardo who had been a character actor and a comedy guy for years playing the Doctor. And oh, some of, some of the Tinker Taylor, Doctor Spy, uh, Tinker uh, Taylor, or Tenor, Tinker like Tenor, Doctor Spy, Spy, yeah. Okay. That's got the scene where he's, um, <laughs> and this is what I think really works for Trek comedy is he's singing opera at the beginning, uh, and we find out it's just a simulation later. But Do like, like I understand you are a Vulcan. Yeah, you've just gone without for seven years. About <laughs> like when they can <laughs> take their established world and premise and like turn it on its head and poke fun at it. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, my favorite bit of that episode is when whenever he says activate the emergency command hologram. They do that close up on his collar, uh, and the captain pips one by one. Yeah, <laughs> a lot better than all those funny Luxana Troy episodes. <laughs> yeah, I go, okay, maybe I should reverse my claim. Are there any funny Next Generation episodes? Well, if we cut out all the Luxana Troy episodes, no. Maybe uh, they're the ones that went the most for comedy because every time they brought her on, it was supposed to be this laugh riot, and it really wasn't. Um, although I would say that her sort of later episodes where she's not trying to be funny are um, some pretty good episodes. Uh, I can't remember the one now, but it's the one with uh, David Ogden Steers, Half a Life or something like that, where she... Oh, okay. I've actually never seen that one. Oh, it's 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 pretty good. But probably my favorite Luxon episode is her DS9 one, where she's trapped in sure. the uh, turbo lift of Odo, sure. and she sort of like has this like breakdown, and they both do, and they sort of open up to each yeah. other in this like interesting way. Um, and I think there's some jokes in it about her and uh, her sort of obnoxiousness, but the focus of it is really on like her relationship with this outsider figure in Odo. Yeah, a lot of the Q episodes are funny That's true. in a way, and and there there are some good jokes in those. Yeah, so Q as a character uh, is very scary, and what he's um, what he's uh, telling you is going to happen is like the destruction of humanity, like has implications. Uh, and then later on, he's a guy who's like, oh, I'm hungry. I want a ice cream sundae. <laughs> like, I don't know if that is a, the good kind of bubble popping or if it's taking like a, uh, a nemesis uh, who's um, very uh, powerful and scary and just making him kind of a silly thing. But again, John DeLancey is very funny. And so you, you couldn't just have him be the guy in the eyeshadow and the lipstick on the chair. Like you have to let him kind of run and, and do funny things on the show. Yeah, and Delancey is funny, and a lot of the, I think a lot of the TNG cast are good comedic actors. Uh, I guess actually the example that comes to me is Michael Dorn, who I think can really like one line it beautifully. Talking about straight men, absolutely. Yeah, because as soon as you say, as soon as I ask, like, is TNG funny? The first thing that comes to me is um, that bit where Worf um, in the Q episode, whatever the um, where they where they play Robin Hood, right? Cupid, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Worf has all the best bits, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a merry man, and the when he breaks Jordy's stupid loot thing, <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, and I think, but 
but yeah, I think, I guess maybe TNG, I think, could be good at sort of using humor as like a grace note to characterization, but maybe was not great about being like, this episode is the funny one. The Ferengi are, are usually funny on DS9, but when they focus on the Ferengi, it's almost like it's a totally different show. I think the best Ferengi episodes are actually the ones that put the Ferengi, I think the Ferengi episodes that are about Ferengi being Ferengi are not very funny. Um, like Rules of Acquisition or the Sex Change one. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I do like the ones where they sort of take the Ferengi and push them into sort of a non-Ferengi world. Because uh, I would say my two favorite Ferengi episodes are probably House of Quark. Um, so where you sort of get like Quark and kind of this almost a wharf plot, right? Like I have to navigate honor <laughs> yeah. uh, in – the Klingon High Council is mad about something. Like that was every season on the Next that Generation. Was every one, yeah, right. Uh, but then you get this great scene there where Quark is like explaining derivatives uh, to the Klingon High Council, and all the council members are like, <laughs> right, as they try to use their pads. And then my other favorite Ferengi episode is uh, the Magnificent Ferengi, uh, right, which sort of plucks them into this like. Uh, hostage dominion war situation uh, and is like, how would Ferengi cope with it? And I think takes the underlying premise of that question very seriously uh, and finds the humor that sort of arises from it. Right. Whereas I think a lot of the like, oh, the Nagus is here and it's wacky hijinks. It's kind of the same thing as the Loxana episode <laughs> where you're, you kind of watch it and you're like, this is not as funny as clearly the writers think it is that, funny. That's absolutely uh, true. Although I do uh, think Wallace Shawn is really funny. Uh, no, he's great. But <laughs> the material he's given is not always consistent with his abilities come to think of it a lot of comedians and comedic actors have been on trek or in trek films and trek somehow manages to make them not funny like whoopi goldberg <laughs> would be the er example but like sarah silverman's been on the show michael mckean i mean they have iggy from taxi and dan from night court in the same movie and they're not funny and i think i guess i feel like sometimes that works like i actually really like sarah silverman's character in future's end um what's that really bad uh, is it the outrageous okona where data tries to learn how to be funny and joke piscopo's on the show yeah yeah that's probably the er like that is like attempt to do comedy but it's nowhere near yeah, funny that's episode. like a comedic vivisection yes <laughs> If such so. a thing exists. Star Trek style comedy has been mostly uh, relegated to parody, I think, like SNL sketches or Galaxy Quest um, or the Orville. That's a Galaxy Quest is a good uh, example of a, of a loving parody of something that is literally taking the um, the uh, conventions of Trek and sort of making fun of them. And also the conventions of fandom as well. And mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that um, the original um, concept uh, – when Ron Moore and the DS9 writers, um, before they decided to rework the Trouble with Tribbles into Trials and Tribulations, they wanted to do an episode where the crew revisits the Iotians, uh, the people mm, from this planet, mm -hmm. 100 years later. And now they're all dressed up like the crew of the Enterprise, and they wanted to use it as a commentary on fan culture. But that might have been a little meta for, for 97. Yeah, there is a good um, – there's a good comic book – issue i think it's in the marvel series from the 90s star trek unlimited have you read this um no the enterprise e goes back to sigma iosha okay uh and it basically takes that premise of they like they put on their gangster costumes and beam down to it <laughs> and everyone's in an original series uniform okay <laughs> i gotta check that out <laughs> and it turns out uh that the new boss is the kid that captain kirk cut in <laughs> and i love uh, that i love that waiting 
Like he's reshaped the whole planet sure. to be a Federation tribute. And he's waiting for Kirk to come back uh, <laughs> and cut and finally give him his cut. I love that oh. kid too, because speaking of cut, that kid has definitely killed someone. <laughs> he's definitely <laughs> killed many people. That uh, whole, that whole scene is I think fantastic. That kid, like, <laughs> It's like, you'll know, uh, oh, my daddy, I want my daddy. And Shatner's like, what have you done to my son? Like, <laughs> right. just like everything there is good. A piece of the action, kid. Right. There's a DC, I should mention, there's a DC um, Star Trek comic um, that was drawn by Gordon Smooter, um, artist and former guest on the show, where uh, Bella Oxmix shows up 20 years later. And it's set in the film era of Trek. Oh, uh, is this in the trial? Kirk's of on Captain trial. Kirk? Yep. Yep. Okay. I haven't read it. I want the trade paperback, but I've never gotten around to it. And Gordon said he had a lot of fun uh, sort of looking at the old episode and trying to age the characters up, but giving them that sort of zoot suit style still. But that's written. That's written by Peter David, that's right? right? Yep. Um, who I think is someone who is reasonably good or was at sort of melding the Star Trek sensibility with a sort of comic sensibility. Yeah. But yeah, but I think in the later years of New Frontier, I stopped reading because it seemed to me like it wasn't it wasn't taking itself seriously enough for me to be invested in it okay, anymore. Okay, sure. Uh, and David, I think earlier he was really good at sort of making that that work in the way that maybe piece of the action does. Yeah. So and David likes doing that, you know, in all of his work. Uh, it can get mm-hmm. really really comedic sometimes. Um. Norman Spinrad, who wrote the episode The Doomsday Machine, was tasked by Roddenberry to write a script for a very special guest star, speaking of comedy people on Trek, Milton Berle. See, Milton Berle wanted to get back on TV, but he wanted to show everybody that he was a real deal, serious actor, uh, Mm. which is a questionable decision. Uh, But Spinrad wrote a draft called He Walked Among Us, which actually has kind of a similar theme to this episode. Um, Burl plays a Federation scientist who affects a primitive society with advanced technology. But Gene Kuhn, uh, in, a, in a rare example of Gene Kuhn sort of misfiring by adding comedy to the show, took the script and rewrote it into a total comedy where Burl was like a health nut. It was sort of like a, a parody of like health food crazes and stuff like that. And so he takes over the planet's society and the script was so bad that Spinrad just begged Roddenberry to kill it. And Roddenberry did. <laughs> So that killed uh, Burton, Milton Berle's uh, debut as a famous, uh, a real serious actor. Dramatic actor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was reading about Gene Kuhn before the show, and I realized that though he's done some real good ones, he's definitely responsible for his share. He didn't always get it right. Um, oh, not at all. Yeah, because I think like his list of episodes is a list of really good ones, but then you sort of get down to that. Oh, he actually – I'm looking at it right now. He actually co-wrote Bread and Circuses, which I just said did the same thing as this one, but not as good. Right. Um, and from what I understand, so, that was one of the um, straws that sort of broke the uh, camel's back as well. But in season – and then in season three when he was freelancing again for the show, it's sort of Spectre the Gun, Spock's Brain, Wink yeah. of an Eye, and yeah. Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, which is not exactly a greatest hits so no um i'm one of those people that will defend spock's brain for some reason uh <laughs> it I, it could have used more comedy because it is ridiculous and the best yes. parts of the episode are when they are sort of acknowledging that it's ridiculous and not trying to get us to really invest in uh, mccoy um moving spock around like an rc car uh <laughs> but it is in the best uh tradition of 50s and 60s sci-fi like totally bonkers and that, that part's cool and I actually do I, – I have a sort of fondness for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Um, not so much the whole thing, 
but the um, I think the scene where Captain Kirk and company kind of realize what's going on with uh, the aliens yeah. is funny. Uh, and in a way that because they literally do not understand what race prejudice is. Right. Right. Uh, and I think it's a it's a really clever mixing of sort of social commentary, but also a good joke where they're like, but you're just black on a different side and <laughs> the guy's like yes and i hate him and they're like right what like and i think that bit is that's probably the good scene of the episode speaking of mood you know equals doom you know the episode ends with uh being superimposed over like dresden bombing footage so it's like we get it like we understand <laughs> this is very serious yeah uh, I think that uh, this episode is a pretty good case study for why the Prime Directive is important. Um, we get the idea that the uh, Prime Directive, which is mentioned in uh, Return of the Archons, um, it's crucial for episodes like Archons, Bread and Circuses, uh, Patterns of Force. But the Iotians themselves seem particularly sensitive to appropriation and being influenced by literature. Because I was thinking about it, they're essentially the galaxy quest of planets. They're like yeah, the that's true. Thermians. You know, they don't understand that they're mm -hmm. taking it too far. Um, and there's the Thermians in Galaxy Quest. They're so oblivious and trusting um, that they don't even have fiction and storytelling. No, I'm not sure the Iotians take it that far, but we don't see any TV on the planet. I guess they have radio. And I have to wonder if the naming of the species is even a clue. This is really stretching. But, you know, Iota, the smallest letter in Greek alphabet, uh, in the Greek alphabet, has become synonymous with fine detail. And they're very obsessed with verisimilitude. Mm. And I always mm. go back to the scene with the card game, which somehow we haven't mentioned yet, <laughs> the Fizbin game. Uh, where uh, William Shatner apparently made up the rules on the day of shooting. Um, but Callow, that character he's playing with, is is desperate to get the rules right. Like, he is, he's right with Kirk at every step. And you'd think, how can he be this dumb to fall for this? But if the Iotians have this aggressive uh, cultural desire to adapt, uh, you know, it works perfectly. They never use the words cargo cult in the episode, but that's clearly what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I was thinking that when I was watching that scene, actually, it was like, um, okay, you're a thug. Like, you're a little <laughs> too into, you're a little too into being good at this game. Right. But when you say that, when you sort of put in the context of, yeah, because there's kind of the whole premise of the episode is that they're like into sort of um, recognizing sort of complex systems and then like succeeding at them, right? Yeah, right. Like, yeah. Naturally, the idea that you could reconstruct all of early 20th century culture from what apparently I, comes across to me as sort of a sociology book um, seems a little improbable, right? Like <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine the writer of it carefully writing down the slang of uh, 20s gangsters uh, in his book. Maybe I'm wrong. Right, well, maybe, yeah, there's a glossary. That they all wore pinstripe suits, right? Like that, <laughs> right. <laughs> that into his book. Uh, but they extrapolate everything, like the design for cars, right? Obviously, I mean, obviously, a lot of this is about saving money. Um, the the whole Earth Street that looks exactly like a proper Earth Street. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, that that makes the Fizzman things. That it's just another sort of like complex system that this Iocean has this sort of imperative to break down, comprehend, uh, and master. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so. What do you think about the concept of uh, interfering? Uh, twice to fix a previous interference like we see in um, this episode or, or private little war there there's sort of a degree to which um i find the prime directive a little paternalistic uh and kind of bogus um like 
it makes sense to me that you have a rule that you don't go to another planet and take it over because they're primitive. Sure. Uh, but this sort of idea, especially more, I think, as next gen developed it, that um, that if you literally do anything to another civilization, like that's worse than them exploding, right? right. Like that, like transplanting a group of people is a worse outcome than uh, letting them die to due to a natural disaster. Uh, seems a little bogus to me. Um, but I guess like piece of action, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I buy into it in the context of that episode because it makes for a good comedy, right? Like yeah. I don't really know that from a sociological perspective, if anything that happens in that episode actually has a lot of validity. Um <laughs> But it allows Captain Kirk to decide to wear a gangster outfit and affect yeah. a Chicago accent. So <laughs> I'm, I'm totally down with it. That's fine. I read in some commentary somewhere, um, and I think that this is true, although the episode doesn't go to great pains to kind of spell it out. But Kirk is just trying to do what Krakow and Oxmix are doing themselves. Like the morality, there's this moral inversion on their world. Um, what uh, Oxmix wants to do is unite everybody in a similar fashion to the United Federation of Planets, um, you know, or the Earth government, you know, back home. He wants to unite everybody to keep the drive-by shootings down, um, you know, to to uh, to promulgate order. Um, now their methods are <laughs> are very unfederation, <laughs> but Kirk is only helping him to achieve what both he wants and you know his goals and the federation's goals are kind of one and the same just their methods are very different and so kirk absolutely totally just you know walks all over the prime directive but he does it to sort of further the society in a beneficial way and in a way that what the federation would ultimately uh, be able to profit from or at least uh, work with yeah because like at the beginning of the episode they're trying to do it the right way like low impact don't use their phasers or anyone can see them uh just sort of come in have a peaceful conversation with the lead authority figure right, right? like the sort of the way it should be uh and it doesn't work right like it just <laughs> does not work uh and the the episode sort of sets up that kirk's approach is morally acceptable with that scene where apparently they have a sociology computer on the enterprise uh, and Spock can just feed in all of the variables and the computer tells him there's no solution. Right. <laughs> right yeah. So at that point, anything Kirk does that leaves the planet in a better state is sort of justified. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, so there's a little bit of hand waving they're doing for the kind of idea that the inner, cause yeah, cause he doesn't, he do, ends up not undoing it. Right. Like that's his original intention. Yeah, but yeah. at the end of the episode, he's just kind of like leans into the system essentially. And it's like, well, this is the system that exists. And if I can't get rid of it, um, I'll just work within this framework. Yeah. Uh, and at least it'll be a slightly better planet than it was <laughs> if they're still all gangsters. And I'll use, um, I have a question about the ship's phasers here. I'll use the ship's phasers to like shoot everybody with stun. I mean, this is the only episode where we see that the ship's artillery, the big phasers apparently have a stun setting. And um, it's so great. I mean, I can <laughs> see why they don't do that. Cause it seems like oh, it could really, it would like, wreck the show. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but I actually, um, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I know it never turns up again in the TV show and I feel like it never even turns up again in novels or anything who delight in sort of taking these obscure (laughs) points out of the show and reusing them. Um, well, I have a, uh, sort of headcanon theory about that. Um, 
is that there, there, there's some kind of clause in the Federation Charter against attacks on a civilian populace. Um, actually, General Order 2 talks about the unnecessary use of force. So Kirk does this. He stuns a whole block of people. Uh, but he definitely got in trouble when he turned in his report to uh, Starfleet. <laughs> but they swept it under the rug because, I mean, the Iotians weren't going to complain. That's something that's interesting as well about this society. They're, it's incredibly violent. And all they respect is force. But, of course, our heroes aren't brutal men, and they don't have anything that they can do to gain respect with these people. If this was a gangster movie, Kirk would have blown Callow's brains out, you know, to make a point. <laughs> but they can use a gesture of this overwhelming force when they put a whole gang to sleepy by sleepy by town. So maybe the use of force in that way is justified here, but really only specifically here. And it does also seem like something that could be very dangerous in a lot of circumstances, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, you don't see in that scene, but they shoot a they shoot a city block, right? right. Anyone who's driving a car has suddenly passed out. Yeah. People go off the road and die, right? right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it seems um, in a battle situation, I feel like you could probably hit – if there was some sort of ground battle going on, you could probably hit your own guys as much as you could hit their guys, right? So again, that's probably not something you would want to deploy all the time. That's true. Uh, but – but I, I'm sure that if you rewatch Star Trek, there have to be a hundred opportunities where if the ship stunned everyone from orbit, everything would have been resolved and they could have gone home. Right. So. <laughs> the show's over before the teaser ends. Yeah. Um, well, this is a breath of fresh air. Uh, getting, finally getting to talk about a comedy episode. Can you think of any other um, funny bits or, or comedy bits that you really enjoyed from the, from the episode? Um, oh, well, we talked about the Fizben scene a little bit. Uh, I do really like, uh, I think, sort of Nimoy in that scene and sort of elsewhere when he's trying to keep up with Kirk's improvisation, uh, where he's like, Kirk is always kind of like, Spock, Spock, back me up here. And Spock's, oh, yes, I have never computed the odds <laughs> of a royal Fizben. Right. Uh, and Kirk's like, that's because they're astronomical. Or there's a really good scene, um, I think, when they're talking to Krakow, where every, every time Kirk sort of says, uh, he says, like, right, and Spock answers affirmative, uh, and Kirk sort of shoots him a look, and then later Kirk says check, and then Spock says right, uh, and then, like, later Kirk says something else, and then Spock says check. Like Spock is always like one piece of slang behind <laughs> Kirk, okay. never using the one that he wants him to use. And I think <laughs> Nimoy is sort of great at the the sort of small he does actually during the Fizzbin scene, uh, you can see that at one point he's sort of muttering under his breath at himself at something that Kirk is saying. Uh, and I think it's a Nimoy just I mean, I think Nimoy will probably never be surpassed as an actor who plays a Vulcan, but he just like has all of these little bits of business that uh, I think are both funny, but completely true to the character. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it prefigures uh, what we get from Worf on TNG, which is mm. like, I'm kind of above this, but I'm not in charge, so I have to keep going <laughs> through it. <laughs> uh, I also like, uh, I like Kirk's uh, exchange with, uh, with, was it Krakow, where he's, or, or Spock's telling him, uh, I think your behavior is arrested. I've never been arrested in my life. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it was interesting when you said at the beginning that they were all um, many of the actors actually acted in gangster movies back in the day. Um, yeah. And that makes like I think that's one of the things I really like about it is it does, I didn't know that I don't know much about 60s television. It's not Star Trek or earlier. 
but the, it does kind of feel like you you haven't stepped into an authentic gangster world, but you have stepped into an authentic gangster movie. <laughs> right. Uh, right. I think people like Oxmix do a great job of making that. Yeah, um, it's sort of come through. It's sort of the Epcot Center version of a gangster world. Like, uh, yeah, like you said, it's we've definitely walked into a verisimilitude or a uh, mock-up of something that is supposed to be this other thing. I don't know. For some reason, Krakow's, his henchman, Zalo or whatever, he, I just call him Dixieland Mark Ruffalo. Go back and look at a picture of him. Dixieland Mark Ruffalo. You'll get that. <laughs> well, uh, as we uh, get to the end here, do you have any uh, last thoughts or parting shots about the episode? Uh, I would I would say that one of my most treasured possessions is a Playmates Captain Kirk in gangster's apparel action figure. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I found it at a convention for like five bucks and I was like, I must own this. Uh, and I think <laughs> it's just like and I think it epitomizes everything I love about the episode, this sort of juxtaposition of what we know is Star Trek with this sort of absurdity of the gangster planet uh i think all of those scenes where kirk and spock are in the pinstripe suits i think are just just work visually even it's not even about like what they say or anything it's just about that kind of visual dissonance which creates a little a certain je ne sais quoi sure yeah to that end i'd love to get a action figure of odo in a um, in the umpire uniform <laughs> Let's talk my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Probably Picard. Um, but I don't know. It's interesting because for me, next gen is not like I like it, but it's not my favorite like original and DS9 are. But I think like Patrick Stewart sort of is what a Starfleet captain should be when he is Patrick Stewart. Sure. Or when he is Picard. Um, but but I do really like um I mean, Shatner is great, and I think uh, Cisco is fascinating. But Patrick Stewart, I guess. Fair enough. Oh, so Patrick, what about you? Not Picard, Patrick Stewart himself. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, at the end of the show, you receive a commission and the rank of ensign in this Starfleet. What department on the ship do you work in? Oh, something really boring, uh, like <laughs> logistics, I think. Um, I used to be an assistant director uh, and I think I was really good at like helping other people make important decisions. And I think that's what I would rather do. Like put me in a logistics room on the Enterprise D, uh, reasonably safe from danger, but I can see all of the cool stuff, uh, at least until the Borg sliced the hole open. And I'm one of the 18 people who sort of pulled out of space. Sucked out in that cylinder of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, some something... Something that doesn't put me in a lot of immediate danger and does not require a lot of command decisions. Wow. You aspire to being menial. I love it. <laughs> Ensign Volman, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Ooh, wherever less accurate grandmother.blogspot.com. Well, thanks again for joining me. You're welcome. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.